Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... Over 70% of people in rural areas are subsistence farmers. When the rain doesn't come when it should, it comes when it shouldn't, crops are wiped out. And because there is no reserve, because there's no insurance, when that happens once, twice, farmers often become indebted and they flock to the city. So we see a huge increase in rural urban migration caused by climate change, which then puts more pressure on the already pressurized situation I just described. This week, we're in Sharm el-Sheikh as we report from this year's United Nations Climate Conference, COP27. While much focus has been on nations and their commitments to curb emissions and deliver financial compensation for the impact of climate change, cities have long been at the forefront of green innovation, clean mobility and lowering levels of pollution. So join us as we explore some of the discussions happening on the ground during week one of this summit. Our guide for today is Monocle's very own Carlotta Rabello. This is The Urbanist. This edition of the United Nations Climate Conference, COP27, in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, is one that has been highly anticipated. While it might not have the same momentum as last year's iteration in Glasgow, it has rightly so been dubbed Africa's COP, the return of the international gathering to the African continent after a six-year hiatus, is a chance for regional leaders to highlight how climate change is affecting their nations and cities. One of such people is Lee White, the Minister of Water, Forests, the Sea and Environment of Gabon. He told me about the importance of making sure the region's particular challenges are heard by their international partners. In Africa, climate change is a question of life and death for many of Africa's citizens. So when I was speaking last year for the Africa Group, it wasn't difficult to speak with passion. What was very complex to manage what hit me about halfway through the first week was the fact that I was speaking for over a billion Africans. And if I didn't convince the world that our needs were important, if we didn't win that battle to get adaptation and loss and damage onto the agenda, then many people would die. And so that puts a weight on your shoulders. We're somewhat detached. I'm here in a negotiating room, and so I'm not seeing the human suffering that is resulting from climate change. But when you start thinking about it and you take the logic to the end, then my performance for Africa definitely potentially affected hundreds of millions of people's lives. I have no problem at all motivating myself to fight for the Gabonese people. I'm the Gabonese minister. That doesn't make the negotiations any easier. They're very complex negotiations where every country in this process is defending their, their own interests and self-interests and developed nations are trying to avoid taking responsibility for this problem that they have created. G20 nations are trying to avoid in many cases taking responsibility and for the African countries, for the island states who risk disappearing under the waves and who can lose their 
you know, the equivalent of their national economy overnight in one storm, we have to find a way to accompany those countries and help them to resist climate change. Now, Minister White mentioned the island states there, a place where climate change has already affected the way they live. Just 75 years ago, an entire community was forced to relocate from the island of Vaitupu to Kiowa. For these small Pacific islands, the time for radical action is now. It was this that prompted the founding of the Kiowa Climate Emergency Declaration, launched here at COP27. For the organizers, it was crucial that this was a community-driven endeavor where the voices of everyday people and not government are the ones heard. I caught up with three Pacific climate activists, Maina Dalia from Tuvalu, Ray from Fiji and Okalarni Marina from Samoa. The Kiowa Declaration is a united Pacific voice that calls for accelerated and ambitious climate action and for increased and accessible climate finance for the frontline communities. So the difference with the Kiowa Declaration and many others that are sort of similar is that it was very much grassroots based. The Kiowa Climate Declaration was built and developed in Kiowa with the community at the front lines. And so it wasn't just somebody in a conference room speaking at high level. It was very much community-led, grassroots-led, that brought together CSOs, NGOs, um, and a lot of Pacific leaders who were at the front line to have their story shared and have that space to hold those and create that declaration. That's really interesting what you mentioned there, because more and more we're seeing the importance of not just allowing leaders to have these conversations, but get civil society, members of the community involved. Do you feel like that's going to be what makes a difference to actually gain momentum for the world to start paying attention to the dangers uh, that climate change is posing for the region? When you read the declaration, literally you're reading the, um, the mind of our communities, you know, the mind of our grandparents, our youths that cannot make to, to COP27. So by reading the declaration and Committing to support the, the declaration, you're literally supporting our community back home. Not like coming to COP empty-handed, but we come here as united. The declaration holds us not just accountable for our communities, but remind us that we have a responsibility to play on behalf of our community. Ryan, for you, what was the important message that you wanted the international community here just observing the event to, what was the main message you wanted them to take with them from all of your speeches and from the declaration itself? From the event, I think the Pacific is fighting to keep the hope of 1.5 degrees Celsius alive and the Kyoto Declaration calls for a complete phasing out of fossil fuels, no new fossil fuel projects and the end of financing of fuel, fossil fuel and the other carbon-emitting extractive industries. And now if I may ask a, a more personal question of each of you, how is this the issue of climate inaction by the world? How is it affecting your lives? I think for the communities that we were part of the dialogue in Kiowa, it's worrying. It's worrying because we've met communities that are already internally displaced, who are still not able to find shelter. We met communities that were forced to move because of extractive industries. And from the lessons learned from this community, I think if there is no sense of urgency to address and to keep us at 1.5 degrees 
a lot of communities may have to be displaced in the future. And what we're fighting right now is to stay at home as the best option. I think it's really important. I just echo what Ray has already mentioned. It's so important that world leaders take action at this COP right now. The Pacific have had their stories used for decades by world leaders to highlight climate action, but no action within those communities have been done. And so we're tired. You know, we're fatigued telling our stories, reliving our traumas, and that's why it's so important that this declaration be put forward because it's the essence of what we really want done, and we no longer just want to tell our story, we want you to act on it. So for this, it's really important for us that they hear us, and not just hear us, but act, and be called to act. Are you hopeful for this edition of COP, for COP27, to actually deliver what your communities need? Yes, we always come to COPs with not just very optimistic, but at the same time very hopeful. So despite the fact that we've been experiencing some pullback in, in the past COPs, but what can we do? We, we always come to COPs with very high expectations. So let's continue to have that aspiration and have that optimistic mind to, and hope that you know, this COP will deliver. It's refreshing to hear community activists being so passionate about the places they call home. At the end of the day, better cities are those where citizens get a say in how they take shape. Hastings Chikoko is the regional director for Africa at C40, the international cities network focusing on climate and representing 97 cities. For him, this level of engagement is a sign of a new era of urbanization, where mayors and local leaders have to be accountable to those they represent. We are in a different era in terms of urbanization and the urban citizenry. You know, the first and second waves of urbanization happened at a time when people were not as empowered people did not have the access to information that they do now. And of course, at that time also, literacy levels were very low. Today, the advantages, the information landscape has opened up. And we have citizens that have access to information, either through social media and or internet or other sources of information. We are living in cities where literacy levels are going up. That is creating an empowered citizen. It is creating a group of urban residents that can actually benchmark, that can actually compare and contrast with how other urban residents are living in other cities through different sources of information. So to answer your question, yes the citizens, the urban residents know, and they know their first point of call. And this is why you see with the current cost of living, the mayors have been really under extreme pressure because the citizens, the residents are demanding different things, ranging from social services to really jobs to provision of food. These requests are first of all going to mayors. So the mayor cannot afford to delay. Otherwise, there will be protests in most cities. Let me give an example of uh, some of the African cities where we are seeing mayors changing, not because their term in office has ended, but because of the political pressure. 
sometimes people demanding what is difficult for the mayor to deliver just because of the way the city economy is. So there is no budget to provide services, but the people want the services and exert pressure to the extent that the political process does get that mayor out of office. We have had mayoral transition in cities such as Johannesburg, Ekuruleni in South Africa, and uh, in also some cities outside South Africa. It is people wanting a leadership that delivers. And the mayor becomes the first point of call when it comes to that, not the president, not the prime minister. So that's the reality that we're in. You mentioned there this political change that citizens forced in a way to African cities. Do you feel like it does make a difference for these sort of conversations that COP is happening on this continent? We've had five editions in a row that you're in Europe. Does the location matter? The last time it was in the African continent, it was Morocco, if I'm not mistaken. So does it make a difference that the world has gathered here? To me, location does matter. Because what the location does, it brings the global community closer to the realities that are typical for that location. For many years, we have been pushing for this kind of gathering to focus on adaptation. We have been pushing for this kind of platform to focus on climate injustice. The fact that the actions of the rich countries are the ones that actually cause the problem, but the impact is felt in geographies such as where we are today in Africa. What this means, bringing COP in an African context, is that we actually succeed to put some of the issues that are closer to the location on the table. This is why you see the Egyptian government, they have tried to actually put adaptation on the agenda as a strong, a much stronger focus from the previous COP. And you have also seen the issue of loss and damage, which is also on the agenda of this COP, something that is really, really, really of interest to a geography such as Africa. So to me, this fact that we move these gatherings in different locations, it helps us to mobilize the community around that location who could not have otherwise traveled to faraway locations to come to that location and strengthen the voice on things that matter to that particular geography. And perhaps it helps as well for those with a more, you know, northern western hemisphere view of the world to see the problems firsthand and see you cannot afford to have inaction inaction costs lives definitely it does right now we we are in egypt when we talk about impacts of climate change water scarcity is one of the issues that we are dealing with which may not be an issue in some of the geographies the fact that they are here they are seeing the aridity of this particular context could be a wake-up call to say, wait a minute, what are we doing about this? And maybe really changes the whole consciousness and the whole interest and really focus on these issues. Situated in a coastal basin on Africa's west coast and surrounded by mountains, Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone, is a city that's particularly exposed to extreme weather. 
Its mayor, Yvonne Aki Sawyer, has become somewhat of a figurehead for the African continent's fight against climate change, and not just on a national level. We're experiencing climate change directly and indirectly. So extreme weather events, extreme rain means flooding, landslides were a mountainous city with a coastal border, extreme heat with the increase in temperature. We have a very large informal sector. So a lot of women, over 60% of women are employed or self-employed as traders in open air markets, which means they're very vulnerable. But additionally, 35 to 40% of our population live in informal settlements. Now, fixing that's a whole other story, but just bringing in terms of climate change and how that impacts extreme heat where the structures, the homes are made from corrugated iron really brings a new meaning to the expression of being cooked. So those are major challenges and I say it with jest but they're very very serious issues and I mentioned that our climate impacts are direct and indirect. That's the direct. The indirect actually exacerbates the direct and the indirect is a result of what is happening in rural communities where climate change has led to crop failures. Again, it's a very agrarian economy. We have over 70% of people in rural areas are subsistence farmers. So in a situation as we're facing now, when the rain doesn't come when it should, it comes when it shouldn't, crops are wiped out. And because there is no reserve, because there's no insurance, when that happens once, twice, Farmers often become indebted and they flock to the city. So we see a huge increase in rural urban migration caused by climate change, which then puts more pressure on the already pressurized situation I just described. So climate change is significantly impacting Freetown. Now, I know that one of the many things that has been done is you have your own chief heat officer as well to exactly tackle the situation that you just described. But we also know that often local leaders and city mayors can push this conversation forward and actually act faster than national governments. Has that been the case for you? Have you been able to actually implement some things that if you're waiting for a national government, you might still be waiting now? We certainly have not been waiting for national government and we have moved forward. There's been collaboration with natural government on some levels. So for example, Freetown, the Tree Town, which is a Transform Freetown initiative, we are first significant funding source was from the World Bank. We approach them directly, but the World Bank works through nations, nation states. So there is a collaboration at that level with the Ministry of Finance. And that's about planting and growing trees. That's very important. But beyond that, um, we've also instituted other interventions, including market shade covers. I talked a lot about extreme heat and the vulnerability of market women. So in three markets, we're now erecting, and by next week, it'll be done. I'm so excited. Erecting these structures, which actually have heat-resilient they look like heat resilient canopies. So think about a car park and then just imagine that these canopies are overhanging where market women would otherwise be exposed to the to extreme heat and to rain during the rainy season. But beyond that, and this is very critical, the need for collaboration, we can move forward, but we can't move the whole way without collaboration. So we've been able to secure funding for a full feasibility study, having already done a pre-feasibility study for ourselves, for a cable car system. That's a game changer for our city. It will reduce emissions from transportation immensely. We don't have mass public transit. We have public transport. 80% of 
residents actually use public transport, but they're low occupancy, high polluting vehicles. Okadas, the motorbikes, the three wheelers, and very old taxis and minivans because bizarrely, the importation duty is actually lower the older the vehicle so that's something government really has to address but ultimately our ability to deliver wholesale change to really push forward projects like this need collaboration with the Ministry of Transport you know with the Ministry of Works so we are moving far and fast but we can't move alone and we have had some challenges I will say but we'd like to see, and we're advocating for governments all over the world, because this is not unique to Freetown, for us all to ensure that we don't put politics ahead of the people. And nowhere is it more urgent and important than in this question of the climate crisis and our response to it. Just a final question, because I, I know you, you have to go, but for you personally, I know you're high in demand here at COP27. What will make this a successful edition of COP for you? What are you hoping to take back with you? Or what are you hoping to share as well? Well, implementation has been said a hundred million times here. And rightly so, because this is supposed to be the COP of implementation. You can't implement without money. And you can't implement in a vacuum. I will make a plea that we at city level are very well placed to implement because we are operational, but the financing is not coming to us. In some cases, the financing is not coming full stop. We've heard the figures that out of the billions that has been dispersed on adaptation, only 2% has come to Africa. So we're talking coming to African governments, we haven't even thought about trickling down to cities. So you can see the scale of the challenge, and it's one that we've got to address. We will not be successful COP will not be successful, the COP of adaptation, the COP of implementation, if we don't see a closure of the gap between the commitments and financial disbursements, we would have failed. But I'm hopeful that that won't be the story, that we'll lead this COP with real solutions and with real money. Now, a passionate local leader can be a game changer for their city and community. We've often spoken here on The Urbanist about the importance of mayors and what they're able to deliver when there's a vision and a will to truly implement change. This was something echoed in several conversations at COP27, including in an address by former New York mayor Michael Bloomberg. We've seen how much progress is possible when cities, states and businesses take the lead and get the support that they need. And the faster we make progress, the more we'll improve public health, save lives, strengthen the economy, expand clean energy, and increase security. And as we've seen very clearly this year, energy is a critical national security issue. It's in the interest of all nations to develop their own clean energy systems and cities, states, regions, and businesses can help pave the way forward and build a more peaceful and prosperous future for us and for our children and for our grandchildren. I wanted to find out more about some of the best practices around the world by cities and the ways in which mayors are leading this fight against climate change. And who better to answer those questions than Mark Watts, the executive director of C40. In Seoul, the side of the world, in Korea, where the mayor has both been aiming to retrofit 
to improve the energy efficiency of all of the public buildings in the city in two years, starting in the pandemic, ending this year, massively reducing energy demand and then creating a solar city, basically, again, achieving 100% renewable electricity. You know, same things in Copenhagen, in Stockholm, in, in Oslo, powering the whole of their city's public transport off renewable energy. It really can be done. All of those examples, the mayor owns a publicly owned energy utility. We need more of that to have real success at this. So you feel like that is the key factor here that can make the difference? The only way we're going to achieve halving emissions by 2030 is really strong public regulation and legislation to create and shape markets where the good private sector companies can prosper, investors that believe in zero carbon world can prosper and have the opportunity. And we also need public ownership of the main utilities because that's where the success is happening first. Now, we've talked a lot here about, you know, what's going in the right direction and the success cases. But I'm curious as well, from your perspective, what are some of the most challenging conversations you've been having with cities in the network? Is there a message when it comes to climate change that you're still struggling to get across and therefore being here at COP is important to raise awareness for that? Is there a particular issue that might be thornier for some places other than others? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things. One is certainly just the scale of climate breakdown is now so severe and so much faster than all the models had projected that there's just, we're really desperate for more investment in resilience to support cities to protect themselves against the rising sea levels, the flooding, the heat. And there's a corollary of that, which is just the rising levels of climate migration, people being forced out of their homes because of climate impacts. And generally, when they're forced out of their homes, they flee to the big cities. So the mayor of Dhaka North, who's going to be here next week from Bangladesh, 2,000 people every day are entering his city, the majority of which are climate migrants from elsewhere in Bangladesh. And mayors mostly get no support to welcome those people who've got incredible skills, add to the fabric of the city, but need support when they first come. So we need a bigger focus on resilience. We need a bigger focus on climate migration. And, of course, we need to help people not have to flee their homes, which in some cases is going to mean planned retreat. So I'm I'm afraid there are lots of cities now where on coastal areas where there, there are lots of homes that just aren't going to be livable in pretty soon. Rather than people being forced out when disaster happens, we need to help them move now, help them get jobs and good new homes in places that can be protected from rising sea levels. Well, one of the things that has been a talking point here at COP has been that idea of the early warning for all system mm. that, you know, if you can give just 24 hours notice when a natural disaster is happening, that can by 30% decrease the yeah. risk and the impact it has in the region. That really ties in with what you just said about the importance of preempting these events that if we do not change course are going to happen. Are there some concrete actions already being taken by C40 on that regard or are you waiting to see what comes out of COP for example to know how you adapt? We never wait to see what <laughs> comes out of COP. We, <laughs> we always get on and drive ahead. Yeah absolutely but I am a big fan of what the UN Secretary General has, has sort of launched this new early warning system project. We think that's absolutely brilliant. We see the big difference that makes. We've also been really pushing and supporting all of our cities to have comprehensive city-wide air pollution monitoring because for the same reason that 
gives the chance for early warning when there are pollution incidents that can save lives, people suffering with asthma, heart conditions, but also it helps build public support. When you show people that it's not just the air in general that's dirty, but the air outside the school where their child is playing in the playground, then people start to support low emission zones, road pricing, cleaner buses and the investment that that takes. So I, I think, you know, the public cares about climate, the public wants climate action, but they often they need the data to know what it is that they should be demanding from political leaders and those kind of early warning systems make all the difference. And just finally, what will make uh, a successful COP27 for you? I think with this one, let's be honest, we're not going to get any big movement on stronger emission reduction commitments and action. The thing that's got to be sorted out here is on loss and damage. This is just a, a massive injustice in the world that countries that did very little to cause the climate crisis are being hit hardest and still there isn't the money flowing to support not for the long term, but not for those immediate disasters. 30 million people displaced in Pakistan. And what have we seen flown so far? You know, a few hundred million dollars. This is an outrage. And we're a strong supporters in C40 that the first call for that money should be from the fossil fuel industry, who've been reaping windfall profits this year with massive rises in the sale of, of oil and gas and coal. That money should be flowing instead to support loss and damage. COP is a conference that runs for a long two weeks. There are many mayors who arrive just for a small portion of it, and time is indeed very limited. But being here and having this renewed focus on a continent that has traditionally been impacted by climate inaction the most shows just how essential it is for these gatherings to be nomadic and change location and for everyone to have a voice, from government officials to mayors and community leaders on the ground. For Monocle in Sharm el-Sheikh, I'm Carlotta Rabello. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens and edited by Christy O'Grady. And to play you out this week, here's Steer with Cityside. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Come